everyone. Welcome to Motherkind, the show that is going to help you navigate the massive challenges of life as a modern mother with more confidence and clarity. Thank you if you come back every week to listen, learn and feel inspired. If you do love the podcast, do me a favour, hit subscribe. It really does make a massive difference. This week's guest says, we can't afford to pretend to love motherhood, not this version of it. The version that has us raising our kids alone in our homes, disconnected from one another, immersed in a culture of judgment and perfectionism under the illusion that we're the ones who can't get our acts together. Beth Berry is a coach, author of Motherwhelmed and mother of four daughters. This episode is a call to arms to start taking your needs seriously because we just can't keep giving, giving, giving to our paid and unpaid work as mothers and carers and not expect ourselves to get burnt out and resentful and ending up, of course, adoring our children, but hating our day-to-day lives. I really hope this episode gives you the fire you need to start giving yourself even a small amount of what you give outwards. I really hope you love this episode. Here it is. So Beth, I wanted to ask you about something that you wrote, which was motherhood has proven the catalyst for emotional and spiritual growth in ways I never imagined. And every member of my family is better for it. And I thought it'd be really powerful to start there. What did you mean by that? And can you unpack that? I guess it's quite a bold statement. So my children, I would consider my greatest spiritual teachers. They have certainly matured me more than anyone else or any other experience. Parenting has matured me more than any experience I've lived. And I would say that At every turn, at every milestone in their growth and development and my own, there have been new challenges, new lessons, new opportunities to choose to grow or choose to numb (laughs) or be sort of mired in frustration and anger over some injustice that I see in the system or some parenting frustration. I've chosen growth over and over and over again, and I've just been blown away by how many growth opportunities have come with motherhood that are just not even mentioned. You know, no one talks about I mean, the parenting manual we never got to begin with, but, but we certainly don't talk about motherhood enough as a path that transforms us and turns us into what I believe to be some of the most powerful potential healers on the planet because we're sort of being put through these initiations over and over and over again. What are you going to do with this one? How about this one? Here's another one. (laughs) You know, they have certainly taught me so much about myself. And I think that some of the biggest lessons have been around being kinder to myself, gentler with myself, because I have endless compassion for them and their experience. And in order for them to eventually hopefully have compassion for themselves, I realized I needed to model that for them. What have been some of those big initiations? So if I asked you to describe, you know, the Beth of 10 years ago to who's sat in front of me today, what has that transformation been? And I guess sort of practical ways. Well, the Beth of 10 years ago, that was sort of early in me waking up to 
how much I was living from a place of codependency that I was had oriented my whole life around my children's needs, desires. I had by that point started making some pretty big shifts in my prioritization, having sort of hit a low point where I realized that I adored my children, but I hated my life. Uh, I couldn't even find myself in this very messy mix. At that point, you know, I'd say 10 years ago, I was really clear that things needed to change. I had started really examining the stories I was telling myself about what was true, what I needed to do or be in order to be a quote unquote good mother, invested mother, loving mother. And I was breaking down stories left and right. 10 years ago, I was also living in Mexico with my family. And so my life had slowed down considerably from the way I had been living it in Austin when I lived there. And so I had more spaciousness to be able to think through and feel my way through the narratives that I had constructed up to that point. And so I would say that Beth was very much deconstructing her whole life and trying to figure out of all the things I was shedding and very clear I didn't want to continue with, what did I want to take into my future and what was worthy? And how much did I have to participate in these sort of systems and ways of parenting that I had thought that I needed to in order for my children to be well or for our family to be okay or intact or whatever? And how much could I let go of that really was clearly not serving me? So I was in a lot of questioning at that point. And looking back on that now, what were the things that you let go of that gave you the most freedom? Because I imagine you let go of a lot of stuff, but what are the things that really stand out in terms of giving you that most of that freedom and edging closer towards that life that you love? Things I let go of at that point were this sense that everything that I did as a parent was responsible for how my children turned out. (laughs) You know, that every mistake I made was going to impact them negatively. And if they were struggling or had challenges, it would be my fault. You know, like I was shedding that one pretty, pretty rapidly at that point. Also that the sort of hustle of motherhood was necessary, that that was part of how I proved that I was devoted, was to keep engaged all the time with all the things and to sort of demonstrate to the world and to my children that I loved them so much that I was willing to basically stay in the state of hyper arousal and never slow down. Like I will work tirelessly for you. I will go, 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 because you're worth it. Like that was kind of what I had been living from. And I just realized like that actually wasn't serving them or me. And it was leading to burnout and that I started feeling more and more like myself. I started feeling more vital and more alive the slower I lived my life. The pace at which I was living was a huge thing that was shifting. And thankfully, I had that opportunity to live in a culture for a while that is slower. So uh, that was a whole lot easier than it would have been if I tried to do that stateside. So much of what you said is just fascinating and definitely needs, we'll, we'll unpack it as we go. Two things have really stood out straight away from what you said. The first is, I adored my children, but I hated my life. I think that is incredibly common for mothers these days. I really do. I think 
so many mothers, you know, me included at times, I just feel like, how is this my life? (laughs) And then the second thing is proving our love through essentially forgetting ourselves, which is in many ways how we've been trained. That's what society's taught, isn't it? That's what a good mother does is that you forget about yourself. What beliefs have you replaced those with? What new narratives have you replaced this with? And what's that meant in sort of really practical terms in terms of how you mother today? So proving our love by forgetting ourselves or abandoning ourselves. I mean, really, again, like this comes back to your first question. This is the spiritual journey of motherhood for me because I just started realizing it because my kids by that point were, my kids are now 15 to 27. And so at that point I was already, you know, navigating adolescence with my eldest And it was really, really challenging. It was clear to me quickly that if that was the story I was going to pass on to her, then that was likely to become her story as a mother. And that just freaking broke my heart. You know, it was like the last thing I want, I have four daughters, is for these four amazing girls who are going to become women and probably would become mothers one day to suddenly swap out their confidence, their worthiness, this sort of ease and playfulness and their bright shining spirits, swap that for this feeling that they could never do enough, that they had to constantly be earning the title of good mother or whatever it was, proving to the world that they were doing enough by exhausting themselves. That didn't sit with me well. And so I just started realizing they actually needed me to show them something different. Also, when my eldest daughter was a teenager, it was very rocky. It was a really, really, really challenging time. She was struggling a lot. And at one point, I realized that what she needed, because I over time, I started kind of feeling like she was lost at sea. And it was my job to keep going out to sea to find her and bring her back. And over years and years and years of that. And then doing a lot of codependency work, I started realizing actually that's not the way, not with this kind of acute challenge. I needed to actually stay on the shore, be the lighthouse and shine brightly so that she could potentially someday possibly find her way back to shore. And so that was kind of where everything shifted that I started being like, no, I'm going to shine brightly. I'm going to stand here and be steady and work on myself and make sure that that I'm shining my light as brightly as possible so that my children see that and benefit from it. That is so hard to do, (laughs) isn't it? I imagine that was like one of the bravest choices that you ever made in your life is choosing to let someone have their pain and stand there knowing that when they're ready to come to you, you will be there full up, bright. I've done that myself, not with a child, but with a very loved, close family member. I've done that. It is so hard. It's so hard. And that's what I mean. These kids have, you know, necessitated this growth and development in me. It was either that or I was going to stay stuck in these cycles that I could tell were toxic to them and me both. Those have been the choices that every pass. It's been like, do the hard thing and continue to grow or get stuck in this really messy and life-draining family system. You know, but I've just always been called to finding the way forward that leads to a felt sense of freedom and that allows for the healthiest possible family system possible. You know, like that's what I've always oriented toward, but that is not an easy path. 
What happened with your daughter? Did she come back to the lighthouse? Yeah, she's coming back. She's 27 and she's three years into therapy herself and she's done incredible work, incredible work. And it was a long journey. It's been a long journey. (laughs) Hard, really hard. Let me talk about that toxic family system versus healthy family system. What does that mean to you? Because I think we use these words, don't we? But if we're not therapists, it's like, how do we know? How does someone listening know? Okay, what does that mean? You've mentioned some words already. You've mentioned codependency. You've mentioned rescuing. You've mentioned giving all of yourself. Those, I guess you're categorizing would be in that sort of more toxic system. What else would the hallmarks for you that that wasn't how you wanted it to be? And what is like a healthy family system? I think clearly there's a whole range and there's no family system that like, this is the healthy model family. <laughs> like that's actually not real either. So for me, when I am living my day-to-day life in such a way that I am self-abandoning, you know, that my needs don't matter, I'm not putting them in the mix, that I am depleting myself, that I am engaging a lot of coping strategies that I know are not necessarily healthy, I guess I would come back to that word, but that they don't feel like the truest representation of me thriving. I'm utilizing this coping strategy because I don't know what else to do. Instead of having with self-awareness and having self-examined figured out, okay, because a lot of it is about understanding the ways we self-sabotage, which are the coping strategies we've put in place throughout our lives that help us to feel a sense of safety and belonging, that helped us to feel like we were earning our love and acceptance as younger kids. And then once we've done that work of really examining how we've constructed our lives to feel safe and secure and loved, then we can start to unpack that and figure out which of those coping strategies is a representation of my truest, most vibrant self and which ones are actually in place that did I put in place as a kid or from a child's perspective or an adolescent mindset that need upgrading. And a lot of that for me has just been a felt sense. Do I feel like I'm stepping into my power and my truth when I do a thing? Or does it feel like, yeah, no, that's not actually me and my telling the full truth of how I feel in the moment. It's me using a workaround in order to avoid the vulnerability of true connection, in order to people please, in order to keep the peace. These are some of the things that I know about myself that I have to watch. I have to watch my rescuing tendencies. I have to watch my, you know, the people pleasing, not as much, but still with some people. That's a thing. My fawning or my tendency to try to, the way that I've heard fawning described that I like so much is it's kind of like sweet bullshit. (laughs) If you're like, what's coming out of your mouth is not a reflection of what's going on inside. You're kind of sweetening everything you say to appease the person in front of you or keep the peace. So, you know, it's been a lot of building that self-awareness that helps me recognize like, this is the truth of who I am. This is the the strongest, most empowered version of me. And now this is a workaround. This is something I put in place a long time ago. I think self-abandonment is just... I don't like the word universal because nothing is, but it seems incredibly common. And you'll know this, you work with thousands of mothers and women too, that of course it makes sense. You know, as children, we almost have to abandon ourselves unless we have like crazy enlightened parents, which, you know, they don't exist. So we have to abandon ourselves in order to get that love. You know, if, if a parent says we don't shout, okay, well, then the math goes, I'm not going to shout to get the love. So 
it just makes so much sense, doesn't it, that we would carry that pattern into motherhood because here is this little being that we've loved more than anything else in our lives ever. Of course, I'm going to engage in that pattern of just abandoning myself time and time and time again in the need of love. It's so powerful that you call that out. And of course, the result is suboptimal. It's not what we want. The equation doesn't work because, of course, the societal and the environment that we're mothering, it means that we just burn out. And I'm glad you mentioned that about the environment because that's so much of it. I think that, yes, we're taught to self-abandon, you know, sort of conditioned that way our whole lives. But then when we become mothers and we're doing so under the circumstances that most people are mothering today, which is not with ample support, we don't have the intact village. We don't have, you know, the, I believe we're supposed to be raising kids collectively to have a whole lot of people who are supporting our children in developing well and supporting us as new parents. And in the absence of the village, the self-abandoning almost becomes a necessary coping strategy, at least for a time. While when our kids are really young, when we have babies and there's no one else around, I mean, this is part of the struggle. We, we intuitively, after we've had a baby, sort of look around and go, well, how else will I keep this child alive? How else will I show them they're loved unless I de-emphasize my own needs and desires because there's no one else around, you know? And so it's so much of it is about the circumstances. I don't think we would be self-abandoning as the norm near as much as mothers if we had the support that we needed. That's such a fascinating thought, isn't it? I think about this all the time. Like, how do we get that line between personal responsibility and growth, as you say, versus that the system is broken. How do you know whether you are sort of beating yourself up like, I'm not coping with this because of the system versus doing some spiritual bypassing or some avoidance of something that you might really need to look at? I think that's such a tricky thing to tread, isn't it? Because both are true. So how does someone know how to navigate both those truths? Yeah, I think that's such an important question. That's a lot of the work that I'm doing with women is helping them to look at what is theirs to own because we all have our downfalls. We all have our strengths and our saboteurs. We all have unmet needs that we're operating from. And so when we can start to identify those things, then we can sort of fill in the gaps and go, okay, here are some unmet needs we have. We're going to work on getting those better met. And we're also going to acknowledge that it's not going to be easy to meet these few needs because of the way the system is structured. So in every thing we do, I think it's a both and that we have to look at what's the personal responsibility in this set of circumstances and what's systemic. For example, I just finished leading a retreat with 25 mothers and it was amazing. You know, we sunk deep into this real true feeling of sisterhood, you know, in five days together. And it was wonderful and fun and lighthearted and playful in a way that a lot of these women haven't experienced in a long time. Home in the day-to-day -day grind with their kids and play and fun, not feeling very accessible to them <laughs> under the circumstances. And so then these women go back home and we just had a Zoom call yesterday to, to sort of debrief and talk about how people are feeling after the retreat. And there's this general sense. I mean, there's a lot of anger coming up among these women. Like that felt good. That felt amazing. I want more of that in my day-to-day -day life. And yet it's not easy 
to recreate those circumstances in our day-to-day lives. To have a whole bunch of sisters around us in our, our neighborhoods, in our communities, to recreate that sense of belonging in the day-to-day. So we need to look at systemically why it's so hard. If we've all got neighbors, why can't we turn those into sisters? You know, like why can't we have this felt sense of belonging by coming together and folding clothes and letting the kids run? And why is that not happening more? And what is mine about that? Like, what are my own coping strategies that are getting in the way of me making the connections that are possible in my neighborhood? And what is actually systemic? How have the systems been set up to make it hard for us to connect with each other? You know, and there's a whole lot there. So I, if I'm just going to look at my own tendencies, I can get really comfortable sort of hiding behind my introversion. I like my alone time. So that's one thing. Also, how many stories are we creating about, oh, they already have their people. They already have their friends. They're really busy. I'm too busy. You know, we've got all these stories that we're creating all the time. And there's also these systemic issues that make it really tough, like the fact that so many kids are indoors now on their screens or away at a summer camp, that a lot of parents are working outside the home, so they're not even home during the day when someone might be wanting to connect, that we are so incredibly busy (laughs) because we're trying to keep up with this capitalistic model and these structures that are in place, that we live in a car culture. So we get in our cars to go do just about everything, at least here in the States. And so we miss out on these daily micro connections that could be happening, like when I lived in Mexico and we didn't have a car didn't need a car. And I felt so connected to the people around me, even though I was just learning the language because I walk out my door and there's people everywhere, you know? And if I want to sit down and get a little work done at a cafe, I'm also going to see people that I know and wave. And there's this felt sense of like, I'm a part of this. I'm a part of this community. So that's structural. So we have got the personal responsibility we need to take for how have we internalized these narratives? And how are we sabotaging our potential for the connections that are possible? And how is it actually so difficult? And let's name that too, so that we're not taking too much responsibility and internalizing this narrative that the reason it's so hard is because I'm personally inadequate. It's right-sizing it, isn't it? It's right-sizing it. And I think either end of those, you can get really lost. It's really easy to go, well, all those reasons, I'm not going to bother. That to me is almost a bypassing. But like you say, it's almost saying, well, hang on a minute. I am the same as you. I do have a tendency to isolate. I really struggle still asking for help. Could you pick my six-year-old up? I struggle with that. And yet I know when I do that, there's vulnerability and connection on the other side of that. Because most people are like, yeah. And then I feel supported. And So I would say for me personally, I sit way more on the individual responsibility thing because I'm not going to be able to change the car culture around where we live very quickly, if not in decades. Even if I put all of my focus energy on that one problem, it would probably, you know. So I think it's so true that we have to look at the both, but I think we also have to have the courage to really look at, okay, what's my part here? And what are some small tweaks that I can do to help improve how this feels for me? The idealism is another thing that gets in our way that if we think, okay, we, I want this to feel like a village. And if we see that we're really, really far from that culturally, then so many people then become depressed and despondent 
or just numb, like, well, that's never happening or become sarcastic. And what we've got to realize is actually, we are part of creating this change. We have, as our generation of mothers, we have specific tasks that in the creating of change in the generational healing process, we have our role to play. And our role in whatever it is that we contribute to the next generation, that's our role. We can't do all of the things. We can't be all the things. And we have been handed an inheritance. And then we get to decide, we will determine what is handed to the next generation. But we forget that because in part, because of the way we're conditioned these days around, like, we want the instant gratification. I know I want it this way and there, but I can't have it. And so then we get sort of mired in this disappointment and whatever, instead of saying, like you said, what are the micro changes we can make? How can I feel a little bit better? How can I reorient in such a way that I do set myself up for more of the kind of connection that I want? What kind of connection do I want, for example? I guess let's talk about sort of Western because we can group those together in a very loose term. What do you believe on a sort of macro level has been handed to our generation of mothers? And what do you believe then? You said each generation has a specific, what do you think is our specific thing to transcend or shift for the next generation? I believe we have been handed a lot of stories. For one, we've done an incredible job of starting to center and take seriously children's needs. Beautiful. Wonderful. You know, abusive parenting practices are not nearly as condoned as they were a generation ago, two generations ago. Awesome. We're making progress, you know, and we have not done such a great job of also centering the needs of caregivers and making sure that both are minded in the system because you can have all of these lofty ideals about how children should be raised, but if the parents don't feel well supported, they're not going to be able to offer those things to the children. So that's one thing. I think we've been passed down this intentionality around child rearing that I think is really beautiful. We've also been handed hyper-independence. You know that independence is to be strived for. The more independent you are, the better mom you are. Also a model of what it is to be successful that doesn't really match up with or align with a lot of our parenting philosophies these days, you know, success, meaning making good money, climbing the ladder, you know, and then how do you merge that with motherhood, which is messy, unpaid. So we've been handed down a lot of perfectionism as well. We've been handed down presenting well, as mothers looking like we have it all together, our homes looking polished, our children looking polished. That's how you be a good mom is to seem like you've got your shit together and uh, not a whole lot of vulnerability and authenticity and connecting in superficial ways, partly as coping strategies. I think a lot of us still also are navigating patriarchal norms that keep women in family systems protecting fragile male egos and, you know, orienting family systems around his needs first, dad's need first, grandpa's needs first. Don't make them do too much emotional labor. We'll do the emotional labor. The women as the holders of the tending, the nurturing, 
yeah, I think all of that has been passed down that there are certain things that women do, certain things that men do, and that we don't want to rock the boat too much because it's just going to make a huge mess of things. Like we're unpacking that stuff like crazy in our generation. Everything that you say is true for me and makes sense in terms of, particularly in our country, you know, what was going on through the the 80s when I was born, you know, we were in Thatcherism, hyper-independence, all about making money. And it does feel like sometimes I think about our generation of mothers as almost like the experiment generation, because we're the generation where parenting standards have risen exponentially, which is an incredible thing. But... The division of labor and the division of emotional labor in the home has not caught up and more of us are working than ever before. So it does seem like we're in this absolute perfect storm. And then you lob in a pandemic, we're in this perfect storm for maternal distress. And I know you talk about that phrase all the time. I feel like even naming that, whenever I talk about that, you know, whatever platform or whoever I'm talking to, there's almost like a collective exhale because it's so obvious and it's so clear Actually, when you put those three things together or four things together with the pandemic, that's why we feel like it's hard because it is. It is hard. And those parenting standards have gone up. Also, the support structures have gone down. In general, we feel less supported, even just the fact that there are no longer in most places like roaming packs of kids in neighborhoods where that's what kids are doing all day. You send them outside to play. That's not the norm for most people, which means that enormous role within a community is now also added to the mother's load. Entertaining the kids all day. And so she's not just like in these gendered roles that we're still, you know, a lot of people navigating. She's not just cooking, cleaning, trying to make some money, you know, tending the emotional needs of her children, not spanking, not not doing all of these kinds of taking disciplinary measures that are like quick and fast and easy and like one and done. Like this is the way we do it to be emotionally there for our children and allow for their big emotions means slowing way down. The only way to do that well is to have enough time and energy and resourcefulness. And we don't have a lot of that because we've got so many things on our plates. And so then we end up with all this guilt that we're not doing it well enough. When, I mean, really, even if just a couple of these things shifted, like if we had roaming packs of kids in neighborhoods where (laughs) during the summer when the kids are out of school, what do they do? They go outside and play. And we're not the only ones trying to keep them engaged and meet their needs for adventure and experiential learning and, you know, plugging them into this and this and this and paying for all those things, even just that would change so much. And so what do we do when we actually need a break as mothers? We use the free babysitter of screens because it's too expensive to get even more childcare or whatever. And then we feel guilty again, (laughs) you know? So it's a setup. It is a bit of a setup for parents right now. Yeah, I read the other day that working mothers today spend more time with their children than non-working mothers in the 70s. And that to me, I just read that, I was like, there we go. Like literally every hour we're either working or with our children. And as you say, the requirement to do a lot of the gentle parenting, the conscious parenting that so many of us desperately want to do to break those generational cycles, you can only do when you've got that bandwidth and that capacity, but it's really, really hard. It's really hard to get that. 
I'm just wondering, you know, we've, we've done such a good job of painting the really challenging picture. How does someone move the pieces within that picture? So you've talked about some of them, but I know this is a lot of what you write about and coach on and, and you talked about identifying needs. Is that where someone should start with this or where does someone start? I do think that's a good place to start is to get clear on what our needs are. First, even before that, being able to start to admit we have them, (laughs) you know, and say that aloud and let that be known within our family. The number of mothers I work with who come in to a coaching program or a year long program and saying like, uh, needs, I don't know, like, do I have needs to begin with? Am I allowed to have needs? This comes up a lot. Am I allowed to need that thing? You know, am I allowed to need time away from my kids? So this allowance thing is interesting too. Like according to who, whose permission are you waiting for? There is this feeling in our bodies. And I do believe it's because of epigenetics and the genetic inheritance we've been given that in order to, again, stay safe and secure and belong, that we don't make waves. We don't speak up. We don't ask for what we need. We don't center our needs. So part of it is just beginning to say, I have needs. Just like, you know, if we look around at any living being, every living being has needs. All of my houseplants have different needs. You know, I can't actually treat one houseplant just like another and expect it to thrive. Even as simple as a houseplant, and yet we expect ourselves not to have individual unique needs. So identifying what some of those are. And I like to think of it like, I'm not going to thrive. So if you look at like a a maple tree and you plant a maple tree on a beach, it's not going to thrive easily. It's not the right circumstances. You know, you take a palm tree and you plant it in a deciduous forest. Good luck to this palm tree. It's just not in its natural environment. And so we've got to start figuring out like, what are my needs for thriving? What do my surroundings need to be like? If I were to be thriving, what would the circumstances look like? And for a lot of people, it's a whole lot more alone time, quiet, just like not having their nervous systems engaged. And we're not set up for that. Societally, whether you are working from home with kids all around you and trying to manage both the work for pay and the work of raising children at the same time, or you're going out of the home and working for pay, or you're home with your kids all day. Any of those keeps our nervous system engaged all the time. We're constantly having this tax on our nervous system, and it's really, really wearing us out. But just that acknowledgement for ourselves is a good starting point to say, I need time and frequent stretches of time where no one needs me, where there's quiet so I can actually relax, where someone else is minding my children's needs well, not just parking them in front of a screen. You know, like this is one of these like struggles that I hear all the time that mothers will say, I want to be able to take time away. But when I do, I know that my partner is just going to park them in front of screens, you know, because there's not the same responsibility yet collectively among men who are in the fathering role that in the time the kids are with them, that there needs to be this also the standard of care and the meeting of some of the kids needs. So this is like one of the biggest desires I hear across the board among mothers is I just want to be able to step away knowing that my kids needs are being well tended, that someone else has a standard for my children's well-being. So that set of needs, 
the need for a sense of lightheartedness and play, the need to feel heard and seen, to truly have someone who gets us and who says, I see you. I see your struggle. I get that kind of struggle. What you're feeling is valid. You know, the need to engage more parts of ourselves than just the caretaker, the wife, you know, the the person who's tending the physical spaces and physical needs. So I do think this is a good first step to start realizing I have these needs. I'm going to vocalize these needs and then to be able to, over time, build a tolerance in our bodies for the sensation of discomfort when we start to express our needs, because it doesn't always go well. I'm so glad that you said that because I feel like that in terms of, you know, identifying our needs, but then being able to tolerate the discomfort of saying, hey, whoever it is, I need you to do X. Even getting a good response back from that takes courage. If our system is not used to doing that, even saying those words can take courage and change. And then often you might get, well, I can't do that because I've got a big meeting if it's a partner or a, you know, a parent saying, well, I can't commit to that. I don't know what. It almost feels I get why mothers say it's easier not to ask at all. I get why mothers say that than to then have to have that, I guess, double rejection of, I've identified my needs. That was hard work. I figured out the courage of how to ask for this specific thing. That was hard work. And I've got into my nervous system and I'm shaking a little bit underneath, but I'm asking for this thing. And now it's been rejected. Mm -hmm. So when you asked earlier about like, what is some of the work of our generation of mothers? This is it. It's learning to understand somatically what's going on in our bodies and build a tool set for being able to stay with some of the necessary discomforts of growth and change and healing so that we aren't then jumping straight to that coping strategy of people pleasing, of peacemaking, of never mind, I'll do it myself. Asking for the thing, it didn't work. And now we're just raging inside again and not getting our needs met. And the cycle continues. You know, we're pattern interrupters. That's what our generation is doing. We're breaking a cycle and it's really challenging work. And it's a whole lot easier when you can be in community with other people who are doing this work, whether it's virtual or in person. If you can find other women who are also pattern interrupters who are saying, no, that's not the way it's going to be. And it's a process, you know, it's a years long process. And it's hard as well. Like if I think about the woman that I was when I married my partner and my expectations of him and, you know, very different. There is an important acknowledgement on the other side, which is I acknowledge that this is new. This is new for you to, I'm talking particularly about sort of male fathers and caregivers, which I know is not the setup for everyone, but I'm going to talk to that because that's my experience. It is a change. It is a change. And, and often, you know, you'll hear fathers say, well, I'm doing way more than my dad ever did. And you're asking me. And I feel like sometimes it's important to acknowledge that other side of it as well. And I, and I acknowledge that with my partner guy as well. I'll say, you know, I would have swallowed this in the past and I'm not going to do that now. And this is going to feel really uncomfortable. And I feel like sometimes just like in coaching, we call it placement, don't we? Like so sometimes giving that placement before I go into something helps my nervous system and it helps the other person because you're right. It is change. It's massive change on both sides and for the kids. You know, mummy's not going to come to that thing. Mummy's not going to pick you up. 
Right. And it's really challenging because we're in this time when some of us are doing this work like in every aspect of our lives and (laughs) we're sort of in it, really deep in it and trying to make these changes, trying to interrupt these patterns. And then you look around at the culture in general and there's lots of people who aren't. And so our kids have those comparisons. Well, so-and-so's mom does everything for her you know, this is what it's like in this other family, or this is what I've seen the moms do on TV. So my mom is choosing not to, and that can feel really confronting to us. And, or the same goes for fathers that they're looking around and going, I'm better dad than all, like all my buddies. I'm more woke than they are, you know? And so there's a bit of this sense of like, geez, like you're asking too much. But I really believe that some of these kinds of conversations early on, and I I love it when I can catch women with this conversation before they get into like these like lifelong commitments and start having kids to be like, these are the kinds of conversations you start having early so that you can weed people out so that you can be clearer on, does this person have a growth mindset? You know, if we're fawning all the way up until we then get married and have kids and then suddenly we want to change this pattern, okay, but we don't necessarily know how our partner is going to respond to this. But if this becomes part of dating before we are even in partnerships that we are starting, we ask more courageous questions, that we be really real with each other. And so we can understand how growth-minded are you actually? (laughs) Do you see patriarchy? Is it real in your mind? And are you invested in this deconstruction too? And I know that that's, you know, it's a big ask of people when they're falling in love. Maybe not on the first date. (laughs) Maybe not the second, but by, you know, third, fourth, like you might as well just, if you are the kind of person who's here to create change, it sure is a whole lot easier if you're partnered with somebody who is also oriented that way. One of the therapy sessions that I remember with my ex-husband that was just like really revealing to me was that our therapist was asking the question of like, well, why are you here? Like on the planet, like this big question, what are you here for? And I was, you know, like really quick to say, like, I'm here to actualize my full potential and to heal as much as I possibly can within myself and support the healing of other people so that Others also can actualize their fullest potential and shine as brightly as possible. And he just like looked at me with this like drop jaw sort of like in disbelief. And he was like, I'm here to have fun. (laughs) I was just like, okay, so and fun. I'm here to have fun, too. But those other things have to be in place as well. (laughs) You know what I mean? And that just really illuminated like not everybody is here for this work. Not everybody's here to deconstruct these systems. That's just not the case. And so I think we need to be realistic too about the fact that we've got to find our people. We have to find other people who are really committed to growth and healing so that it doesn't feel so isolating. And I think it's an important point, isn't it? That that's okay too. That's okay that you're not invested in this work or in this change or you're not moving through those phases of your life, particularly to those mothers you know, with less resources, time, you're in survival mode. And when you're in survival mode, I don't think you can reach those higher levels of, well, Maslow tells us we can't reach those higher levels of purpose and self-actualization. So that's another really important point that you raised that it's all good. 
It's just that if you do have that calling, what I'm hearing you saying is we need to do that in community. It's going to be more effective if we do it in a community. We need places. The way I see it, there's sort of two different paths. One is that we face these broken systems. We do this healing work and we then set ourselves up to feel the full range of human emotions, right? Which includes some rage and deep sadness. There's a lot of grief in the healing process, which is why in this other path is to avoid those less comfortable feelings, to numb. And that's not the growth and healing path. Brene Brown talks about you can't selectively numb emotions. We can't just pick and choose. So if we're going to numb the more challenging emotions, we're also going to have less access to joy, for example. So to be able to understand that if we are people who are choosing to feel the full range of human emotions, because we've stepped onto this growth path, we need outlets. We need places to feel those and not just in isolation. So when you come together and go to a retreat or when you join a Zoom call of other people who are doing this work, we can acknowledge each other's deep, deep sadness. We can acknowledge each other's anger and righteous rage that is so important. If we don't have those outlets, then we're holding a whole lot of big emotions without, I mean, we need dance, we need to be singing. We've got to have things to help us move these emotions through because a lot of us are deeply sensitive people, those of us who are on this growth path. And so life can really feel, um, it can lead to a, like a shutdown because it's a lot. We've got a lot to process right now. So I just really emphasize this over and over that those of us who have stepped onto the path and we're saying, I am here to help create change. I'm a change maker. Please find ways to move big emotions through you because you're going to be so much more effective. You're going to have so much more access to joy. If you're stepping onto the path as a change maker and you don't have big outlets for those big emotions, the chances of burning out are just so much higher. The path becomes like, how could I possibly create change in this world? Because there's so many problems, but I do think moving the emotions through is essential to that. It's almost full circle, isn't it, from where we started by talking about the lighthouse. Like we cannot talk about changing systems and, you know, being a light for other people if we're not that ourselves. The maths does not add up. So it's almost like a really beautiful way to draw to a close, thinking about us as that lighthouse, as that example, as that model, as opposed to that martyr which I guess is another really prevalent model in motherhood. I always ask the same question at the end, which is if you could give just one gift, all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? I would give the gift of alleviating the burden of the story that it's our personal inadequacy that's making motherhood so hard. I really don't believe it's true. I believe we all have so much to offer. I believe actually mothers are the least problematic part of the equation. We're the ones most deeply invested of all the demographics on the whole planet. We're the ones most deeply invested in loving and caring and knowing the next generation, intending their needs. So I really think that that self-compassion, the more we can find not only the self-awareness that so many of us are developing, but it's got to be coupled with self-compassion in order for us not just to have more to beat ourselves up about. <laughs> like the more I know about myself, the more down on myself, hard on myself. 
I am. So that's the gift I would give is just, I think that that's one of the most important things we can do as our generation of mothers is to strip away the story that it's our personal inadequacies that are making motherhood so hard and start to look at the systems and what we have adopted of the narratives that have come from the systems. So we can be kinder and gentler with ourselves and model that for our kids so that they're not also beating themselves up when they're parents one day. Beautiful. Thank you. How does someone learn more about you and your work? And you've got an amazing book, which I would highly recommend. You can find me on revolutionfromhome.com. Also, I'm on Instagram at revolutionfromhome and Facebook as well. And I have yearly programs retreats, one-on-one coaching, also a membership site where we're having lots of these kinds of conversations. I've loved this chat. Thank you so much. Thank you, Zoe. I've really enjoyed it too. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about these things. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on.